Chapter 18, Vietnam, the Advisory Years to 1965, by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18, The War in Vietnam, 1964. Once asked why the United States should not have command over the Vietnamese armed forces, General Harkins replied that this would be contrary to U.S. national policy. More to the point, the Vietnamese government would not agree to the arrangement, since it jealously guarded its sovereign right to accept or reject American advice. Although this question and this position were never officially challenged, certain other command problems continued to vex the carrying out of the counterinsurgency. Among them were the tie-in of MACV and MAAG, the role and influence of the U.S. Air Force in directing policy in the country, chiefly in the controversy over the single management of aircraft and the organization of the Vietnamese Air Force. These received attention in 1964. In the USAF view, the principal command problem in Vietnam since 1962 was the absence of experienced high-ranking air officers on the MACV Joint Staff, to explain what air power could and could not do. The MACV staff was dominated by Army officers rather than really jointly manned. No component Army and Navy units existed under MACV with the equivalent status of the 2nd Air Division. Admiral Felt was sympathetic to having a senior USAF officer in the mainstream of MACV current operations. In September 1963, he had proposed filling the MACV chief of staff slot with a USAF officer when it became vacant in mid-1964. The Joint Chiefs of Staff approved, but the Secretary of Defense did not. After talking with Harkins during his December 1963 visit to Saigon, the Defense Secretary was set on making changes along lines suggested by the Army. Early in 1964, he created the new position of Deputy Commander McVie and named Army Lieutenant General William C. Westmoreland to do it. He placed Brigadier General Ben Sternberg, USA, in the J-1 personnel niche. He downgraded the USAF colonel serving as J-2 intelligence to Deputy J-2, and put a Marine Corps Brigadier General over him. He directed Harkins to reorganize McVie, and the subsequent alteration shrunk the USAF allocation of J-Staff jobs to the post of J-5 plans held by Major General Milton B. Adams. McNamara nevertheless believed the Air Force to be well represented. He pointed to the 2nd Air Division commander and the MAAG Air Force section chief, who were both general officers and present in Saigon. Admiral Felt and General Jacob E. Smart, PAC Air Force commander, questioned the wisdom of revamping MACV while the Vietnamese government was trying to recover from the shock of two coups. They had not concurred in a Joint Chief's suggestion on February 15 to merge MAAG and MACV, but a study by General Sternberg addressed the broader question. The existence of the two headquarters had surely led to duplication of effort, occasional lapses, and coordination and a needlessly complicated advisory program. If the functions were fused under MACV, Sternberg favored MACV as a specified Army command in lieu of a subordinate joint command. That would enhance the Army's role at the expense of the Navy and Air Force. While General Smart assented to the need for a large Army share in the advisory assistance effort, he failed to understand the logic of Army predominance. When McNamara and Taylor came to Hawaii in March, Smart argued for placing senior U.S. Air Force officers in decision-making positions in the reorganized headquarters so that air power could be best employed. The secretary said he knew of no operation that had suffered from want of air support. Taylor had heard of such instances, but blamed poor communications instead of faulty organization or unsound policy. Admiral Felt asserted that at times Army advisers neglected to pass along air support requests because they wanted to use Army aircraft to further Army doctrinal concepts. McNamara refused to change his outlook. General Westmoreland, 
former commander of the 18th Airborne Corps, became the deputy commander of MACV on January 27, 1964. Major General Joseph H. Moore, a close friend of Westmoreland since boyhood, replaced General Anthus as 2nd Air Division commander on the 31st. Air Force officials hoped that Moore's close ties with Westmoreland would help brighten the image, expand the influence, and enlarge the number of senior staff personnel of the Air Force, as well as clear up air problems. General Wheeler, Army Chief of Staff, ordered Westmoreland to get the air mission straightened out. He said he would not tolerate a fight for hidebound doctrinal concepts. If Army doctrine got in the way of the war effort, Wheeler could and would change doctrine with a stroke of his pen. Besides 104 aircraft, the 2nd Air Division had about 4,600 people in January 1964, nearly 60 on the MACV staff, 400 in MAAG, and more than 4,000 in the U.S. Air Force units. Yet hope for a bigger Air Force part in counterinsurgency soon vanished. The MACV J-3 complained that his U.S. Air Force deputy, who was highly regarded by the 2nd Air Division, was unable to look at J-3 matters except through U.S. Air Force tinted glasses, knew nothing about ground operations, and was of little use. The deputy was succeeded by an Army officer. General Moore pressed for the assignment of a U.S. Air Force officer as MACV Chief of Staff when General Weed of the Marine Corps wound up his tour in May. Instead, Major General Richard G. Stilwell moved from J-3 to Chief of Staff and another Army officer, Brigadier General William E. Depew, took over the J-3 job. Perhaps foreshadowing the end of the advisory era, MAAG was closed out on May 15, 1964. Its functions went to an expanded MACV headquarters, and the Army Corps advisory groups fell directly under MACV. The MAAG Air Force section became the Air Force Advisory Group, assigned to MACV and with operational control vested in General Moore as the U.S. Air Force component commander. Moore also came to be the senior advisor to the Vietnamese Air Force. General Rowland, chief of the Air Force Advisory Group, acted as Moore's deputy for the Vietnamese Air Force Military Assistance Program. To General Smart, the new setup did little to extend air knowledge and experience at MACV. Rather than trimming the headquarters, the change triggered a request to raise staff spaces by 310. 283 U.S. Army, 24 Navy Marine Corps, and 3 U.S. Air Force. SMART recommended at least 38 more U.S. Air Force officers as directorate and branch chiefs. Disregarding his desires, MACV in September asked for 71 new United States Air Force spaces, mostly for field advisory work. General Westmoreland rose to MACV commander when General Haskins reached retirement age on June 20th. Ambassador Lodge resigned on the 23rd to join in the national elections at home, and President Johnson selected General Taylor for the post. On July 15th, Admiral Felt retired, and Admiral Ulysses S. Grant Sharp, Jr. became SYNCPAC. A whole new leadership emerged. Should an Air Force officer be named as Westmoreland's deputy? Westmoreland had said in early June that he needed no deputy, but General LeMay argued in Joint Chief of Staff discussions that a deputy from another service was a must to preserve the unified nature of MACV. Because of broadening air operations, he thought the deputy should be a U.S. Air Force general. The Navy and Marine Corps thought so, too. General Wheeler, Army Chief, suggested that the 2nd Air Division commander be designated deputy commander for air as an additional duty of air operations group. Chairman Taylor was for giving the deputy position to an officer who could afford across-the-board assistance to Westmoreland. Owing to the nature of operations, he wished to see a two- or three-star army general in the job. Taylor queried Westmoreland, who then said he wanted an army general. After McNamara's approval on June 18, Lieutenant General John L. Throckmorton was assigned. General LeMay reiterated the need for United States Air Force expertise on the MACV staff. In September, Westmoreland proposed to give the 2nd Air Division commander the second hat of Deputy Commander for Air Operations, MACV, 
the air staff and pacific air force command opposed this action because it offered the mac v staff no real additional help westmoreland none the less went ahead with the proposal on november twelfth sinkpack bowed to the political climate and put it forward to the joint chiefs not until seven months later was the new title approved still the reshuffling of may fifteenth bestowed some benefits tucking the air force advisory group under second air division was long overdue and fostered unity and control the harmony between westmoreland and moore nurtured better working relations between macri and second air division yet general westmoreland continued to command u s army components violating the principle that commanders of unified activities must be divorced from service operations in effect the mac v air component commander answered to the army component commander moreover the sparse service expertise on the mac v staff made it hard to pursue joint matters properly a case in point was the mac v airlift allocation board run by one overworked united states air force officer in j four army officers so ruled the mac v joint research and test activity that the air force hesitated to test combined concepts for combinations of equipment just eight of the forty-five authorized officer spaces in j three were air force only one was a colonel slot the newly created deputy assistant chief of staff j three for air j three for the most part entrusted air matters to the second air division staff but more and more assumed control of day-to-day -day air operations this was done at first through an american mac v staff element in the vietnamese armed forces joint operations center later an army air operations section was formed with j three personnel to allocate army aircraft to the corps and to control other army aviation resources to coordinate army and air force infrared reconnaissance the mac v target research and analysis center was founded in december nineteen sixty four this j two function took care of centralizing targeting the tactical air control system survived and outwardly appeared to meet doctrinal needs still it was soon evident that the status of the tactical air commander was severely eroded the second air division commander had no command authority no direct operating duties and no staff support senior united states air force officers perceived that the local situation in vietnam dictated several deviations from proven tactical air doctrine but they cautioned against adopting the mac v air control system as a model for worldwide air command and control procedures the performance of the vietnamese air force also stirred concern central to the vietnamese military concept was the parceling out of resources among the four corps commanders who governed all ground air naval and paramilitary forces within their areas air force officers notably general smart protested splintering the meager vietnamese air power even so many army officers believed this grouping was required in what they saw as largely a ground struggle colonel nguyen cao kai had won command of the vietnamese air force for his part in the ming coup and polished his prestige by supporting the kang coup he assured generals moore and Rowland that he did not intend to relinquish centralized control over air power new wings kai said were to be assigned to geographical corps areas rather than to corps commanders on march fifteenth vietnamese tactical wing headquarters were transferred to the corps areas and located at da nang pleiku and benoit and another was projected for kang tho when the new airfield was finished a composite airlift and reconnaissance wing continued to operate under the air operations center the proposal to place liaison and helicopter squadrons under the corps came up in april kai dissented and macvee sided with him the transfer was not carried out general moore worked to keep the tactical air control system intact including the air support operations centers since the vietnamese wing commanders at da nang and pleiku advised and planned with corps commanders the roles of the first and second corps air support operation centers declined the sub-operation center at nang tran was shut down on the whole moore considered the vietnamese air force organization a deviation but close enough to classical air concepts to be acceptable major general sam mattox jr thirteenth air force commander 
decided not to dwell on the defects by retaining the integrity of his command kai could deploy his units as a national counter-coup force yet american influence over vietnamese air operations diminished for example the forty first tactical wing and first corps staffs planned for march thirty a night medium level bombing raid against the Viet Cong training center army and air force advisors first learned of the attack when planning was well under way and white phosphorus bombs were requested from american stocks twelve t twenty eights and four a one h's participated colonel kai who rode in one of the t twenty eights depicted the strike as a highly successful demonstration of a new night bombing capability vietnamese army photo interpreters gave a glowing account of damages to the Viet Cong, but the u s army interpreters failed to find the same results the word for the air force in vietnam general anthus had written in november nineteen sixty three is austerity having both american and vietnamese components in mind war-weary air commando aircraft a fledgling vietnamese air force and a slow air request net made it difficult to seize combat opportunities the united states air force thirty fourth tactical group was scheduled to phase out of vietnam withdrawal would begin in mid nineteen sixty four with the departure of the nineteenth tactical air support squadron which furnished forward air controllers the first air commando squadron due to receive in june nineteen sixty four the first two of eighteen rebuilt unmarked b twenty six k's was to leave in mid-1965. Farm gates, B-26s, were nearly worn out, but the 2nd Air Division expected them to survive with careful flying if the Viet Cong introduced no heavy weapons with anti-aircraft sighting devices. The new Vietnamese 518th Fighter Squadron was to get A-1Hs in March 1964. Also that month, the 700th and 16th Composite Reconnaissance Squadron was programmed to have its 18 RT-28s and three RC-47s. During the second quarter of 1964, the United States Air Force's T-28s were to be replaced on a one-for-one -one basis with dual-piloted A-1Hs. By 1964, Vietnamese and American aircraft were furnishing but one-half of the support asked for. The reasons lay in air request net troubles, and the rising damage to planes from Viet Cong ground defenses. On February 11th, after the wing of a B-26 at Eglin Air Force Base broke off in flight, all B-26s in Vietnam were taken out of combat. They could fly only straight and level with the lightest of ordnance loads. The uncertain combat worthiness of the old B-26s led, led Pacific Air Force Command to suggest deploying a squadron of the 3rd Bombardment Wing's light jet B-57s from Japan to Benoit. These planes were being withdrawn from the wing, but they were admirable for the war. Their jet speed spelled swift response to air support requests. The MACV commander in Sinkpak voiced grave concerns over the loss of the B-26s, which General Westmoreland called his Sunday Punch. Both headquarters proposed a squadron of B-57s with Vietnamese markings and mixed crews to operate out of Benoit under Farmgate rules. On March 2nd, the Joint Chiefs made the same suggestion to Defense Secretary McNamara. At March conferences in Saigon, McNamara questioned General Moore regarding Vietnamese Air Force needs the secretary judged it cheaper to give the vietnamese further aircraft than to bring in fresh united states air force planes he settled on equipping all vietnamese fighter units with a one h s twenty five tagged for the five hundred and fourteenth fighter squadron in the third corps area to replace the t twenty eights in addition he earmarked thirty for the first air command squadron to take over from the worn out b twenty sixes and t twenty eights General Smart told McNamara in Hawaii that tactical air chalked up more than 30% of the enemy casualties in South Vietnam, 14,944 out of 49,100 in 1962 and 1963. If a few obsolete aircraft could do this damage, think of what new and better planes could achieve. McNamara replied that he appreciated why B-57s were desired, 
First, however, the United States should exploit the easier method of sending in more non-jet planes to help win the war. What interested him was the possible use of B-57s in covert operations against North Vietnam. The Defense Secretary's recommendations, approved by President Johnson, embodied equipping the Vietnamese with 25A1Hs in exchange for T-28s. At the close of March, 48 B-57s and crews flew from Yokota Air Base in Japan to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Colonel Benjamin S. Preston, Jr., commander of the 34th Tactical Group at Benoit, went all out to keep his B-26s in the air, but clearly they could not be saved. Every plane had cracked stress plates and loose rivets throughout its wings. On April 8th, the last of the B-26s and RB-26s were to be ferried to Clark Air Base for salvage. So long as the T-28s faced no heavy ground fire, they did the job, despite their fairly slow speed and small armament load. As Viet Cong firing heated up, however, they became vulnerable. On February 18th, a T-28 took a hit while flying interdiction, but the crew fortunately escaped serious injury in the crash landing. The next day, a second T-28 was shot down while strafing in support of a ground operation, and the crewmen were killed. Three Vietnamese A-1Hs shared a like fate in February. Since the T-28s had outlived their safe employment in Vietnam, replacement A-1 Sky Raiders came in. On March 18th, the newly formed Vietnamese 518th Fighter Squadron, with 10 of 25 authorized A-1Hs, began to fly combat from Benoit. Colonel George I. Rodell, deputy to the MAC VJ-3, surveyed the ground fire threat. He thought that a return to the Air Force's standard four aircraft fighter flights was in order, with each echelon of two protecting the other two during low-level passes. This called for more planes, so Rodell recommended that the 34th Tactical Group get two squadrons each of 25 A-1Es in lieu of a single squadron of 30. Harkin, Smart, and Felt approved and passed the proposal to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Compelled to stand down the combat-worn B-26s, Colonel Preston wondered how he could keep the 1st Air Commando Squadron going. On March 24th, a T-28B lost a wing and crashed while on a bomb run near Sok Trang, killing the pilot, Captain Edwin G. Shank, Jr., and the Vietnamese crewman. All T-28s had been closely inspected and aircraft maintenance was excellent. Even so, the loss of the T-28 so soon after the B-26 wing failures impaired pilot morale. By April 1st, the 2nd Air Wing Division was practically flat out of business. On April 9th, a T-28 crew was completing a third strafing pass over a well-defended target when the wing snapped off and the plane crashed. Two specialists from the North American Aviation Incorporated flew to Benoit, ran inspections, they said that the T-28 could not take the slam-bang type flying because it was a trainer, not a properly stressed fighter pilot. At their suggestion, Colonel Preston retired the five remaining Farmgate T-28s that had been in combat since November 1961. He borrowed nine newer T-28s from the Vietnamese, bringing the 1st Air Commando Squadron's combat-ready aircraft to 15. He warned pilots about G-limits, caution them not to land if carrying external ordnance, and place limits on loading the wing stations of B-model T-28s. To cut damages from small arms fire, Preston set a minimum altitude of 1,000 feet for attack runs. The T-28s stayed in operation until A-1Es took their place. At least 1,546 airstrike requests were received in the first three months of 1964. Of the 424 not honored, 230 were due to a shortage of planes. These figures did not present a true picture, for ground commanders and forward air controllers disliked to file new requests after being turned down. Air ground operations yielded slight results. Between January 16th and 19th, the 21st Division in An Huen province was, was supported by the most tactical air sorties yet flown in the division area. 44 on the first day. 
However, the Helleborn troops came to grips with no sizable enemy forces on the ground. During January 17th through the 28th, the 7th Division mounted a massive search and clear Helleborn and water invasion into the Than Pu district of Kien Hoi province. Artillery fire and pre-landing strikes by B-26s and T-28 supported the operation. Still, the enemy poured withering ground fire into the first waves of helicopters, peppering all 32 craft and downing one, a UH-1 gunship. On the 18th, another armed UH-1 was hit and plunged into the water. Only the co-pilot and a crewman were rescued. Even with constant air cover, friendly losses totaled 20 dead, 25 wounded, and two UH-1s destroyed. The Viet Cong lost 46 killed and 97 captured. The main problem probably lay in the lack of directness on aerial coordination and command over a Helleborn landing area. The sole person actually allowed to tell tactical air what to do was the Vietnamese forward air controller, and he had neither the rank nor the experience to be an air commander. Problems also pervaded the smaller air operations for provincial forces. In the 5th Division area of 3rd Corps, for example, the United States Air Force liaison officer pointed out that the Viet Cong kindled cooking fires at dusk. They could take this risk because Vietnamese strike pilots were not routinely ready to fly at night. An exception occurred on January 16th when a Vietnamese C-47 flare ship and four A-1Hs struck an assembly point in Tha Ninh province. Most night air requests were not honored. As for day pinpoint strikes, just 14 of 67 requested interdiction targets were attacked in February. Pilots of the 514th Fighter Squadron said they were sick and tired of expending their ordnance on nothing but empty fields, trees, and jungles. This frustration stemmed from the drawn-out air request handling required by the 5th Division commander. All immediate sightings of the enemy vanished before being targeted. There were, however, some good results from strikes against enemy-held areas that provincial troops could not enter. These were the remote locations in the East Coast provinces of Third Corps. The Fuuk Two enemy's movements. Forward Air Controller had good rapport with the province chief, who knew the enemy's movements and could and would approve targets for air action. Elsewhere, airstrikes were hindered by controllers unfamiliar with the area and by popular force commanders who feared close fire support by artillery, armed helicopters, or fighters. In light of the lag in strike aircraft response, Army advisors in 3rd and 4th Corps accented the importance of helicopter assaults. The Vietnamese, as a rule, needed 30 minutes to scramble fighters, while processing a request commonly consumed one hour. Colonel Mellish, air liaison officer of 3rd Corps, urged the forward staging of aircraft to shave this delay. Three T-28s were sent on ground alert to Phan Thiet, where Viet Cong attacks were foreseen. When the foe failed to appear, the little-used T-28s remained exposed to the hazards of a primitive airstrip. The number of tactical air sorties available to the Third Corps on a busy day was around 30. This contrasted sharply with the average 275 sorties a day flown by U.S. Army planes in support of Third Corps. The Army aviation assigned to the Corps was sizable. 17 utility UH-1s, 11 UH-1 gunships, 2 CV-2 transports, 4 U-1 utility transports, 2 OV-1 armed reconnaissance planes, and 8 L-19 liaison aircraft. Lesser operations in the difficult Fourth Corps entailed up to four or five Helleborn missions every day in the 7th and 21st Division areas. Five U.S. Air Force T-28s at Sok Trang could react swiftly, but it took one and a half hours to get ground-alert aircraft from Bien Ho. Though the Vietnamese 112th Liaison Squadron kept a detachment of 501s at Can Tho, the planes were confined to forward air control and target-marking duty. The United States Air Force liaison officers hitched rides on the Army liaison aircraft when they could. Most of the time, however, they were grounded at the division command post, hence their sole knowledge of the air situation at a target area came from an Army liaison communication relay plane that flew cover over Helleborn landing operations. 
during march barely seventy-one of a hundred and twenty-six air support requests from the seventh division could be satisfied in the fourth corps and in april merely eighty-four of a hundred and forty-eight requests were approved the air liaison officer and forward air controller spent a lot of their time in keeping ground officers from becoming discouraged with the sparse air support according to lieutenant colonel clarence r osborne jr instant air support from arm uh one helicopters often saved the day on april twelfth the viet cong destroyed the district town of kien long in chuan dien province the vietnamese air force turned in a splendid performance featuring an a1h hit on a one hundred and five millimeter howitzer before dawn and a steady stream of air support strikes throughout the day the tactical air support system squeezed thirty to forty-five sorties out of the aircraft at benoit but this was not enough to stave off a serious government defeat meanwhile the joint chiefs asked if two separate air control systems operated in vietnam and if vietnamese commanders were getting conflicting advice from u s army and united states air force advisers MacV replied that one system directed air force aircraft while the other was a separate aviation headquarters that managed army and marine corps air units since these units afforded special assistance and had no role in the development of the vietnamese air structure i've been free to employ them as i see fit to the maximum support of the ground effort the u s army senior adviser at third corps a colonel was an extreme partisan of army aviation who slighted tactical air support he never invited the corps united states air force liaison officer to planning conferences and as a matter of fact was not on speaking terms with him the senior adviser prepared pacification plans that made no mention of tactical air support when general moore offered help he was turned down moore told general westmoreland of this and MacVee directed that province pacification plans contain an air operations annex drawn by united states air force advisers from then on the colonel called the air liaison officer to all briefings and planning conferences air advisers were few among the ground units the second air division had authority for seventeen lieutenant colonels as air liaison officers with corps and divisions and army advisers outranked them there were thirty-two captains and lieutenants as air adviser forward air controllers with regiments in comparison army advisers numbered up to five hundred in a corps with assignments going down to company level general moore had kept the rank of air advisers low to avoid dwarfing relatively junior vietnamese counterparts general maddox thirteenth air force commander wanted a senior united states air force colonel to be assigned to the joint general staff he further wished corps air liaison officers to be colonels thus giving them equal prestige with army senior corps advisers general westmoreland was dead set against raising the corps air liaison officers to the rank of colonel he regarded the army senior advisers as MacVee senior advisers responsible for all military matters to include the use of air power corps air liaison officers were supposed to advise the senior advisers and westmoreland assured general moore that they would be listened to when moore learned that vietnamese wing commanders would be the chief air adviser to the corps commanders he acceded to the MACV commander's point of view indeed the second air division commander felt that conflict between the two distinct control systems was overdrawn confident of cooperation he said the army is just as strongly opposed to air force control of its aircraft as we are for the army to control ours even so moore desired to enlarge the tactical air control system by adding an air request communications net manned and operated by the air force it would resemble the united states strike command tactical air command system worked out during maneuvers in the united states he hoped to do away with the long delays in passing air requests up through channels over vietnamese army communications general moore's proposed net for handling vietnamese air requests would enhance united states air force advice at lower ground echelons an air force pilot forward air controller and two radio operators were to man tactical air control parties at all levels down to battalion they would process air support requests provide advice and direct close air support strikes to man this country-wide setup 
the second air division was to draw pilots from the united states air force nineteenth tactical air support squadron moore envisioned a continuing need for vietnamese controllers to mark remote and hard-to-find interdiction targets however he saw no reason why air force controllers army liaison pilots and army and vietnamese forward air guides could not mesh their efforts to designate targets for airstrikes moore counted on speeding up the reaction of the vietnamese air force by training and assigning vietnamese down to battalion level first as counterparts and eventually to replace united states air force personnel he also wanted an air force liaison officer appointed to the joint general staff and more vietnamese working in its operations center general westmoreland added a united states air force colonel as adviser to the joint general staff and he authorized moore to use pacific air force command resources to establish the air request net in the third corps area in washington joint chief of staff chairman wheeler secured mcnamara's assent for the air request net the defense secretary let the air force deploy combat ready tactical air control parties from the tactical air command they were to serve on temporary duty in vietnam pending the procurement of personnel and equipment for the second air division with plans for the new air request net nearing fruition with the b-26s already retired with the t-28s in stress trouble with mcnamara against having a b-57 squadron in south vietnam general moore wrote to general lemay in april asking for an expansion from two to three a-1e squadrons of twenty-five planes each two of these units at benoit would permit standard four-ship fighter formations and provide for the predicted upturn in airstrikes created by the air request system the third squadron was to be based at the new cantho airfield being built in the mekon delta and slated for completion in early nineteen sixty five without disparaging vietnamese progress moore stressed that a third united states air force a one e squadron would enable planes to respond quickly to on-call air support missions this would set a proper example for vietnamese airmen whose morale tended to be low richard t sanborn second air division operations analyst showed that fifty a one e's and seventy five a one h's would generate three thousand and thirty eight sorties per month with ten percent for training considering the rise in air support requests and the demand for larger aircraft flights sanborn computed combat sorties at four thousand four hundred and seventy six by august nineteen sixty four he foresaw further rises in the future general maddox thirteenth air force commander pointed out that a third a one e squadron might end retention of the b fifty sevens at clark but he saw no reason for making an issue of the new unit so soon since it could not be accommodated at Cantho until nineteen sixty five however general william h blanchard air force vice chief of staff stated that the air force was planning for the third squadron to be fully equipped at Cantho by march nineteen sixty five general wheeler justified the a one e expansion because of low vietnamese performance nevertheless the additional united states air force planes would delay vietnamese self-sufficiency and undermined the principle that americans were to help rather than to fight two events revealed that the rule restricting united states air force advisers from engaging in battle was being strained if not entirely broken the first took place on march eighth when colonel thomas m hergert deputy chief of the m a a g air force section was killed he was flying an a one h as wingman to a vietnamese flight leader on an interdiction mission both had made a dozen passes to deliver ordnance when Hergert's plane crashed. Smoke was seen billowing from the right-wing route just before the right-wing exploded. Investigation disclosed that 89 United States Air Force pilots were flying Vietnamese aircraft, but no advisor could lead a flight, be the first to expend ordnance, or continue a mission if the Vietnamese flight leader aborted. Colonel Hergert was the 28th United States Air Force combat fatality in Vietnam since January 1962. The second event concerned Captain Schenck, who had died in a T-28 crash on March 24th. On April 21st, U.S. congressmen and the press were furnished several letters Schenck had written home. He had criticized the airworthiness of U.S. aircraft 
and told of first air commando pilots flying combat missions with vietnamese basic airmen popularly called sandbags the airmen went along as the required vietnamese crewmen for to obtain qualified crew members meant diverting fifty to seventy-five vietnamese pilots from their own planes seeing that these pilots were assigned on the basis of one point five for each cockpit this would severely hamper vietnamese air power if legitimate vietnamese observers flew with americans the liaison and forward air controller programs would be bankrupt consequently general moore suggested that the arbitrary requirement for a vietnamese aboard a u s strike aircraft be lifted non-rated airmen scarcely contributed to the missions normally flown to augment vietnamese planes on april twenty ninth the joint chiefs of staff proposed that the number of united states air force a one e's in vietnam be upped at once to fifty two squadrons and to a third squadron later secretary of defense mcnamara consented to the immediate increase to two squadrons which was in line with admiral felt's hope for a third squadron in nineteen sixty five mcnamara also accepted general smart's suggestion to hold the b fifty sevens at clark as an ace in the hole for a contingency visiting saigon in may secretary mcnamara and general taylor were cool toward a third a one e squadron taylor said it would not sell in washington mcnamara reiterated that u s forces were not to take part in combat the secretary directed general moore to get the vietnamese trained so that they could do everything themselves he ordered the vietnamese pilot ratio raised from one point five to two per plane and the vietnamese seven hundred and sixteenth composite reconnaissance squadron fitted out with twenty five a one h's by october first and converted to a fourth fighter squadron this would take the place of a third u s a one e squadron upon return to washington the defense secretary in a news interview emphasized that united states air force personnel were in vietnam to train the vietnamese to fight an anti-guerrilla war within the defense establishment he made known his intention to phase down the strike operations of the first air commando squadron and his goal to have that unit out of vietnam in a hundred and twenty days a few days later taylor reaffirmed the policy that united states military personnel were not to join in combat farmgate aircraft could only fly bona fide operational training missions against hostile targets to prepare the participating vietnamese air force personnel for eventual replacement of u s pilots u s helicopter missions would keep on introducing americans into combat situations but helicopters are for use as transport their weapons were for self-protection armed helicopters will not be used as a substitute for close air support strikes on june third smart asked felt in westmoreland to clarify the joint chief of staff directive that forbade farmgate from entering into combat but let americans fly operational training missions against hostile targets they replied that farmgate was to fly combat but to be more circumspect farmgate was to further ensure that vietnamese personnel aboard american aircraft were pilot aspirants or undergoing flight training westmoreland thought that mac v could live with the directive and keep farmgate fighting its effect he said would not be appreciable on the second air division and on u s helicopters toward the close of april seventeen vietnamese a one h s were combat loaded and deployed from benoit to da nang the unannounced mission turned out to be the start of a seven battalion search and clear helleborn sweep in the second corps during april twenty seventh through may thirty first the sorties flown by the vietnamese air force totaled two hundred and sixty six l nineteen and l twenty four hundred and twenty a one h and t twenty eight and one hundred and two h thirty four missions the helicopters did psychological warfare medical evacuation resupply and crop destruction a daily average of ten a one h's were on tap at da nang and the five hundred and sixteenth fighter squadron kept five t twenty eights at the qua nang airfield for immediate air support the operation apparently caught the Viet Cong by surprise not only were many automatic weapons captured and destroyed but enemy installations were broken up 
yet when the fighting was over it was impossible to leave three irregular companies behind as planned because the foe had been scattered but not wiped out nevertheless this example of well-coordinated combat aviation gave smart confidence that vietnamese air power was clearly on the upswing despite this burnishing of vietnamese air force prestige the month-long operation consumed almost one-half of all vietnamese combat sorties in may besides vietnamese and united states air force aircraft conversions were cutting into vietnamese aircraft the first air commando squadron had borrowed fifteen t-28s from the five hundred and sixteenth fighter squadron which sent pilots to benoit for a one transition training given by the united states pacific fleet's naval air squadron va one fifty two the a one h was bigger than the t twenty eight and twisted about more from the propeller torque it had a tail wheel rather than the tricycle landing gear that the pilots were used to hence several a one h's suffered damage in ground accidents when ten a one h's arrived in may they sat on the ramps at da nang since the vietnamese forty first cameron was unfamiliar with the aircraft the incommissioned rate averaged merely four or five a day and at times dipped to three at benoit the first air commando squadron stayed operational with a borrowed t-28s one was lost in a take-off accident and six were transferred on may twentieth to combat in laos this left only eight due chiefly to fewer t-28s combat sorties dwindled in may even as requests for air support climbed in mid-month united states air force personnel followed mcnamara's guidance to the letter they worked to lift the vietnamese fighter pilot ratio to two per plane they pushed the enlargement of the fighter force to four a one h squadrons so that the first air commando squadron could be withdrawn the defense secretary wanted the tactical reconnaissance squadron converted to the fourth fighter squadron by october and he authorized air transport and other vietnamese pilots to fly fighters as the crash plan for the secretary's program neared completion the joint chief of staff's directive banning u s planes from combat without giving bona fide training to vietnamese crew members foreshadowed a decline in united states air force combat sorties this came at the time when there were too few aircraft to meet requirements and the vietnamese were building two new a one h squadrons recognizing the emergency mac v ruled that the first air commando squadron could continue to fly its eight t-28s carrying vietnamese crewmen who were not potential pilots as soon as a one e's replaced t-28s however a one e combat operations would be held strictly to genuine training on may twenty eighth mac v decided to equip the present three vietnamese fighter squadrons to attain two pilots per plane by october first it likewise intended to form three more fighter squadrons as soon as aircraft became available by february fifteenth nineteen sixty five if all went well only vietnamese pilots were to attend the intensive a one h pilot training program the thirty fourth tactical group would present the initial two-week indoctrination naval air squadron v a one fifty two was to furnish the five-week transition course and the thirty fourth would administer the final training meeting with the joint chiefs on june eighth secretary mcnamara directed that the first four vietnamese fighter squadrons receive primary attention the two others secondary on june seventeenth admiral felt accepted a pacific air force command evaluation and reported to the chiefs that mcv was trying to do too much too fast he suggested that the five hundred and sixteenth fighter squadron be brought to full strength in september and that the five hundred and twentieth fighter squadron be made operational at cantho by the end of the year he judged that the vietnamese could man four fighter squadrons without inactivating their two c forty seven transport units on july twenty fourth the joint chiefs of staff agreed to the four squadron projection on may thirtieth lieutenant colonel john m porter commander of the first air commando squadron had led the original flight of six a one e's from the philippines to benoit colonel preston noted that his thirty fourth tactical group had moved up into the big league with a first-line aircraft on the thirty first the a one e's flew their maiden strike sorties colonel william e bethea who assumed command of the thirty fourth group in june 
was impressed by the plane's large and varied ordnance take off from a four thousand foot runway fully loaded extremely long range and good loitering still the a1e's normal cruising speed of a hundred and fifty five knots retarded rapid response to air support requests chiefly in the far reaches of the mekong delta and the aircraft could barely defend itself in aerial combat with twelve a1e's on site by june thirtieth the t-28s were retired the thirty-fourth tactical group set about giving transition training to vietnamese pilots air support requests totaled one thousand five hundred and forty six during january through march nineteen sixty four and two thousand and forty from april through june lack of aircraft accounted for sixty-eight of the a hundred and seven requests that could not be honored in the second quarter generally united states air force communications were deemed better than those of the u s army general westmoreland therefore ordered the army aviation battalion control center situated in the joint operations center of the joint general staff to relocate within the united states air force vietnamese air operations center general moore expected the move which commenced on may eighteenth to enhance coordination among army air force and vietnamese air activities this did not occur the single sideband prc forty seven and kwm two a radios were the backbone of the vietnamese air request net but the sets did not always work properly due to the tropical climate and inexperienced operators in addition ground commanders were unwilling to allow the air request system to function as designed the joint general staff issued no directive and the ground commanders refused to be bypassed on strike firepower in consequence the air request net served merely to provide information all official requests continued to travel the tortuous route over the old vietnamese army air request net nor did the joint general staff relax its ban on strike aircraft releasing ordnance close to ground forces except at the direction of a vietnamese forward air controller on april twenty third the united states air force t twenty eights were over vietnamese rangers who were trapped near trung lap although the planes had voiced communications with a u s army l nineteen and with wounded american advisers on the ground they were not permitted to attack armed army helicopters arrived were fired upon and returned the fire but the t-28s jettisoned their unused ordnance and returned to base there were other problems unless vietnamese pilots could speak english united states air force controllers were unable to communicate with them air liaison officer and forward air controller duties were clearly unpopular among vietnamese and the manning ratio of two pilots to each fighter aircraft sharply curtailed the number and caliber of vietnamese pilots who could be spared for such duties finally the human and natural environment worked against ground tactical air control parties their heavy bulky radio gear was hard to lug through the jungle sometimes it was out of the question to direct an airstrike safely from the ground because the presence of civilians could be seen solely from the air mountains and heavy vegetation hampered the ground view and the flat ground of the delta offered no elevations to help determine range numerous tree lines and canal ridges also obstructed the view in mid nineteen sixty four it was generally agreed that ground tactical air control parties could not take the place of airborne control yet potent air support demanded something better than the plodding vietnamese l nineteens and their often indifferent observers strong pleas to prevent the demise of the nineteenth tactical air support squadron proved futile the unit remained under orders to transfer its aircraft to the vietnamese like the building of the vietnamese air strike force the vietnamese air strike system held promise for the future however neither vietnamese air power nor control procedures were able to withstand viet cong attacks over the earlier months of nineteen sixty four c-47 and c-123 flare support for outposts and villages more than doubled the night sorties group but on the night of july six when the viet cong assaulted the nam dong special forces camp near the demilitarized zone a flare ship orbited overhead and dropped flares till dawn not until first light did two a-1h's and an o-1 forward air controller arrive over the target then they were unable to strike because the controller could not make radio contact with the besieged forces to verify the target the insurgents partially overran the camp 
killed fifty-five South Vietnamese, two U.S. Special Forces soldiers, and an Australian advisor. The delay in A1H reaction stemmed from the 516th Fighter Squadron pilots being unable to fly at night. A further factor was the operating rule that barred the O-1 from making a target close to friendly forces without positive identification. A more grievous failure ensued on July 21st in Chung Thien Province. Viet Cong stormed the Shang Kut outposts before dawn and set ambush positions along the road to be taken by relief forces. Within the one hour needed to get a Vietnamese controller to the scene, the ambush decimated the friendly troops killing 41 and wounding 56. Two Vietnamese A-1Hs on ground alert came one and one-half hours after the air support mission was requested. On the morning of July 28, the Viet Cong hit two hamlets in a post immediately north of Ben Cot in Bien Duong province. A battalion responded, lost a lead tank to 57-millimeter recoilless rifle fire, and broke apart under assault. In an initial air support strike, four United States Air Force A-1Es accepted targets from a U.S. Army O-1 pilot, but the Vietnamese A-1H pilots next on station refused to act without a Vietnamese air controller. Even though the Army liaison pilot and Vietnamese ground observer marked enemy positions with smoke rockets, by the time a Vietnamese controller got there, the guerrillas had faded into the jungle. The policy of defining counterinsurgency as something distinctly different from other states of armed conflict resulted in not developing enough air firepower to defeat the Viet Cong. Occasional two-plane airstrikes on well-known enemy base areas did little more than harass. One proposed solution was to ask the civilians to leave Viet Cong havens, then large-scale bombing of these havens could be carried out by United States Air Force tactical aircraft from bases in Thailand, Okinawa, and the Philippines. With in-flight refueling, the planes need not ever land in South Vietnam. In mid-1964, General Westmoreland was deeply concerned with the surge in successful Viet Cong hamlet and outpost attacks and ambushes of troop units and convoys. His basic approach lay in sending more U.S. forces into provinces at the district level. Their presence spurred Vietnamese paramilitary and lower-level units to speed up pacification. Concluding that the air reaction time to night attacks was too slow, Westmoreland directed Army advisors to keep armed helicopters, some flare-equipped, on night alert at provincial headquarters. He requested more Army Special Forces troops, and he asked for one helicopter company in direct support of each Vietnamese division, plus additional armed helicopter companies and platoons. In addition, the MACV commander instructed General Moore and Brigadier General Delk M. Oden, commander of the United States Army Support Command, Vietnam, to shore up all American air support of troop movements, convoys, and reaction forces. Moore and Oden issued a formal agreement that Westmoreland placed in a MACV directive dated September 7th. To refine coordination, Army and Marine Corps aviation was to be co-located as would Air Force and Vietnamese control agencies. Ground reaction forces would not normally move without air support. In many cases, armed helicopters would engage and pinpoint the enemy until more heavily armed fighters arrived. If too few fighters were to be had, extra armed helicopters would be used. The more Odin agreement was perhaps useful as an interim measure required by conditions in South Vietnam. Still, it differed in important respects from proven tactical air doctrine. The agreement perpetuated two separate air control systems, Air Force and Army Marine Corps, which made it possible for a ground commander to receive conflicting advice. Time and again, General LeMay protested the presence of armed helicopters in Vietnam because tactical fighters perform better. Even so, the more Odin agreement recognized complementary needs for both types of aircraft. Some United States Air Force officers believed that the 2nd Air Division was being hoodwinked into the Roles and Missions Agreement, but theory had to give way to practicality. With the absence of enemy air power, armed helicopters proved useful. Their instant reply to ground fire offset their inaccurate and rather light firepower. But the Viet Cong's introduction of more 50 caliber and 40 millimeter weapons trimmed the helicopter's advantages. 
the Air Force concept of centralized control of all air resources remained fundamental and sound, in the words of Colonel Allison C. Brooks, General Moore's deputy. However, since the fairly slow A-1 aircraft in Vietnam could not be moved rapidly from one base to another, Brooks agreed that they should be dispersed into the areas where the battles occurred. So long as there was no deviation from the principle of centralized control, the planes could be shifted as required without fragmenting the effort. End of chapter 18